Good morning, Foundation Church. How's everybody feeling today? Yeah, I like it. Okay, we've got some energy. I like it. Good, good, good. Well, it is uh, abundantly clear that I am not Aaron Rayburn. Uh, so if you brought your families this morning and you're sitting there like, oh, great, a substitute. Uh, I've been there before. I know how you feel. Um, but I hope to um, deliver a message from heaven to you today, even though I'm not Aaron Rayburn. If you're disappointed, he'll be back next week. Um, <laughs> so uh, before I get going, I just want to say that were it not for the transformative power of Jesus, I would not be standing here today. And were it not for that transformative power in my life and some people feeding into me and mentoring me um, into the way of Jesus, I wouldn't be here. And, and one of my mentors from a distance. I actually did get to sit under his teaching when I was a senior in college at Manhattan First Baptist in New York City. Um, his name was uh, Timothy Keller. He was a Presbyterian minister, and on Friday, um, he went home to be with Jesus after succumbing to pancreatic cancer. And he had, um, he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer three years ago, and in that three years, he wrote two books. He's written a lot of them. One of them was The Guardrails That Kept Me Focused on Jesus and His Ways as I was a biology major navigating uh, my, capstone, my capstone course, which was evolution, in which I had to read um, Charles Darwin's In the Origin of Species, and Timothy Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God that really kept my path straight. God used him in a powerful way then, but in the past three years, the two books that he wrote, one was called um, Hope in Times of Fear, and it's about the how someone who is close to meeting Jesus, how much they bank on the truth of the resurrection, and how important that is. And the last book, the last words um, that Timothy Keller wrote were a book called Forgive. So if that's something that you're struggling with, I'm just going to put a little plug in for him. But again, I'm here today because of how God used him in my life and how he used him to teach me. So um, uh, a little disclaimer this morning, um, you're going to get a physician's take on a physician's take, Luke, of the great physician. So uh, there'll be a little bit of science and uh, that kind of thing. So uh, fair warning, um, that may excite you, that may make you nervous, but I hope to break it down for you this morning. Um, I'm also a professor uh, for the University of Kentucky, and I will warn you also that um, you can take the professor out of the classroom, but you can't take the classroom out of the professor. So if you are here and you have a pen and paper, I encourage you to take notes. Uh, I'll try and structure things in a way that you can take notes. Um, without further ado, uh, let's get to Scripture. Uh, I'm going to kick it a little bit old school. Um, so if you guys will stand for the reading of God's Word. After we read today's Scripture passage, um, I will pray, and then you can be seated after the prayer. Um, I don't like surprises, so I'll try and guide you through that. <clears throat> And by the way, Pokemon cards make great uh, bookmarks for your Bible. Uh, I am a father of four. So uh, anyway, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, um, verses 17 through 26 today. <clears throat> One day while he was teaching, uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen strange things today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for making your word stand against history and time so that we can have it in our hands and have access and free access to it today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall in this place and I pray that it would soften hearts and the ears of our hearts, Lord. May we hear what you want to say to us today. Lord, get me out of the way so that your message can be clearly communicated today. I pray that every person in this room encounters your spirit this morning, your spirit to transform and change and not leave us the same as before we entered the presence of your spirit. We are so thankful for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I absolutely love that Jesus works through the narrative, the story. Jesus and the authors of Scripture are master storytellers. Jesus lived a story to impact our story. And stories are essentially a written or oral historic record of encounters. In any narrative, there's no story per se without a protagonist, a hero, an antagonist, a villain, and the response of that encounter is the story. In today's passage of Scripture, we have narrative, and we have encounter, actually several encounters, and several responses to those encounters. And I hope to break down those in depth moving forward so that we may find ourselves in God's narrative. Some encounters in today's scripture may seem more apparent than others, but hopefully together we can peel back the layers on these encounters. But first, let's revisit the basics. Now, a little bit of background here. Every encounter that we experience is a confrontation. And, and our culture has deemed the word confrontation in a negative way. A negative, we've negatively connotated the word confrontation. And not all confrontations are negative experiences. Confrontation implies contact. In humans, encounters represent the meeting and the interface of unique personalities, worldviews, cultures, voices, traditions, preconceived notions, opinions, knowledge, and ideologies. 
Sometimes those confrontations lead to friendships, love, joy, happiness, and contentment. Some lead to hate, annoyance, aggression, ill will, and discontent. Wherein lies the difference? What is it in an encounter that determines the response? Typically, that's what each entity brings into the encounter. An encounter at its most basic and primal root has traditionally elicited one of two responses. And you might have heard of these in biology. As a student, somewhere along the way, somebody's talked to you about the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response. Now, history likes to dictate that in every encounter, our sympathetic nervous system reigns supreme and our only options are aggression in a fight or to flee in fear. But there's another, there's balance. There's another system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And it's the one we all like. Rest and digest, which we'll probably be doing a little bit later. An encounter is composed of three major components. A confrontation, an invitation, and a response. Now, forgive me here, if you spoke with my students, you would know that Dr. Elam always likes to math in public. So, shall we math in public an equation this morning? An equation for an encounter. Now, I I have some lovely uh, uh, special guests here. Um, This is my family, a little shout out. So, we have two entities meet. So, we have entity A, we have a... uh, uh, a family here, and they are going to meet a waterfall that goes down into a briar patch. That may be familiar to some of you guys. Now, again, um, each entity brings something to the table. Uh, there's an encounter, a confrontation, and there is contact. And the response, we have choice. We have free will to choose our response. We have free will to choose fight, flight. We are not supremely m- managed by our nervous system. Now, move on. All of these individuals in Entity A are having the same encounter, but as you can see, different responses ensue. And by the way, I have a really uh, sick and twisted uh, pastime. I love it when Disney rides capture terror on my kids' faces. So, and there's a whole uh, organization online where you can see all of these <laughs> terrified pictures of kids that they get snapped on a Disney ride or a ride. But yeah, so we definitely have seen a little fear, a lot of fear there. Uh, maybe a little fun and fear kind of mixed, a little fight, but maybe one of sheer joy. Sheer joy. Um, uh, sheer joy, uh, uncertainty is what I'm going to call this one. A little bit of uncertainty and sheer joy. Yeah, this is my wife's favorite picture. She was so excited that everybody was going to see her wide open mouth um, and her Disney ears. Uh, um, now, you may see those different uh, faces and think that there were different uh, encounters, but they were all the same encounter, but there were vastly different responses. Now, let's keep moving and try and apply that where you might have heard it in your biology class. Man meets bear. And I've got Andy Dwyer here. Any parks and rec people in the room? Yeah, that's it. Um, So this is a man. He meets a bear. And he has the choice to choose two responses. Now, 
Uh, I do want to tell you guys, if you've um, got some downtime and you want to meet Terrible Teddy there, um, that is from a bar in Alabama in the early 90s, and that is a real picture. It's not Photoshopped, um, but people would get a little liquid courage and then decide instead of fleeing from bears, they would fight them. Now, that bear has been declawed and detoothed. Um, any PETA people in the house, I apologize. Um, so, But anyway, so uh, Jim Bob here has decided to fight the bear, and you can see this camera crew down here who has decided um, in their best interest um, they're going to flee from the bear. But history likes to dictate that we only have two responses. Our culture likes to tell us um, they like to get into two-party systems and, and like to let us think that um, there's not an alternative. But what if there were? What if there were? What if we had the option to freeze? There is, in modern psychology, a theory called polyvagal theory, which argues that we have more options than fight or flight. And in my humble opinion, a more biblical approach to responses, the freeze response. Now you can see here on the screen, um, without a paddle. Anybody seen without a paddle? Okay, yes. Okay, um, you can see, so um, three men encounter a bear out in the woods, and um, the first response that Matthew Lillard, the guy that played Shaggy and Scooby-Doo up on the screen there, he says, just stop. And then the bear keeps coming, and then he screams and runs. And then Seth Green trips. And so he decides to get in a fetal position and freeze. Now, I want you to think with me if you will think back into your childhood or if you've seen like cops and robbers or you've seen people play like um, uh, games like cops and robbers as kids, um, they'll say, this is a stick up. And they'll say, freeze. And then oftentimes the response to that is, I surrender. So again, I argue that the biblical response is surrender. Let's, let's apply this one in one more place. Let's go to the African savanna. I am not a zoologist. I will tell you that. So we're going to say, um, let's go back just one. Uh, I'm going to say, so we have a line. I know what that is. Now, this could be a gazelle or an antelope or an impala. I don't know the difference. But either way, we have predator and we have prey. And they meet. And even as primal and animalistic as it sounds, the prey does have options other than fight or flight. Now, what would fighting do to this deer thing? Deer with two E's. What would fight do to that? If he were in the jaws of a lion and he were fighting, he would lose all of his energy just fighting that lion's teeth and ultimately would, would fall prey to the lion. If he were to flee, he might make it, you know, a few yards, but he's probably going to get caught. He's going to wear out quick. But what if he were to freeze? Now, this impala gazelle or antelope is frozen. Freezing gives the antelope the time to absorb and reserve energy for that one moment when the line is a little bit worn down. It Freezing and surrendering gives the antelope time to gather energy to really escape into freedom. Freezing surrender is the way by which we make it to freedom. So you can see here, paused, and then he waited for that right moment. He had all the energy. The lion is worn out, and this is where the lion ends up. And the, the deer animal on the African savanna escapes to freedom. 
That was all introductory. Welcome to Foundation Church. All right, so let's keep moving. Now, we've developed a lens this morning by which to look back at our Scripture. So use that polyvagal lens. Let's, let's go back to our Scripture. So we will go to verse 17. One day while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So, we have our first definition of entities, if we're applying our formula, involved in our encounter this morning. As a matter of fact, this is the first documented encounter of Jesus and the religious group formerly known as the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. Now, as we try to find ourselves in the story, it's good to get a bit of background on who the Pharisees are. Pharisee. The term Pharisee gets thrown around a lot in church cultures, right? If somebody gets all judgy, we call them a Pharisee. Um, it's usually not a term of endearment. We, we give them a bad rep, and in my humble opinion, probably because we, the church, see ourselves in them more than we would like. Now, they were a group of laymen, lay people, and scribes, and in Jesus' day, they numbered about 6,000 strong. So I want to get you an idea of how big this crowd was. And most of what we know is that these were the only guys in the crowd. That's all we know so far. Uh, Now, Luke tries to paint this little casual picture like they're lounging around. Yes, we were just in the area. No, they intentionally came from all around, huge crowd of them, to see what this pesky new teacher was doing to steal their thunder. Now, um, they were a rebellion group. They formed in opposition to another religious group called the Sadducees, who were traditionally the high priesthood and provided the sole leadership for the Jewish people. And what made a Pharisee a Pharisee was their interpretation of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So about 160, 165 years before Jesus was born, there was this rebellion. Now, Sadducees relied only on the Torah word for word, without taking into account any cultural contextualization or anybody's specific interpretation or opinion on the Torah. Pharisees championed the oral tradition or the unwritten Torah. They believed that the law given to Moses and revelation or God revealing himself was twofold. Not just the written law or the Torah as followed by the Sadducees. They argued that man must use his reasoning to apply to the Torah to contempor- to apply the Torah to contemporary problems. They were self-proclaimed representatives of the Torah in Jewish culture and society. Sound familiar? I imagine I imagine they were the first church organization to argue that the church they were brought up in under leadership of the Sadducees was irrelevant. Can anybody relate? Anybody ever use the word irrelevant? Mom and dad's church is irrelevant. Let's find a new one. Okay? Pharisees. Now I think we can agree with Pharisees Uh, and disagree with Sadducees in that God reveals himself in more ways than just his word. We are promised that we can encounter him in his word, but we can also encounter him in other ways. I would would argue, and and what I I refer to as, uh, or what's referred to in theology as a Wesleyan quadrilateral, God reveals himself through his word, through tradition, through reason, through experience, through what he speaks to us, through other people, other individuals. Um, but where the Pharisees went awry, so we can agree with them there, that God speaks to us in other ways than just His Word. Where the Pharisees went awry, the Pharisees harmonized the teachings of the Torah with their own ideas and found their own ideas implied in it. They were often seeking, they would go to God's words, seeking support for their actions, whatever their actions may be. Anybody heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Anybody heard 
uh, how our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, um, decided to utilize the Bible. The Smithsonian Museum still has uh, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He literally took and cut what he liked out of the Bible and compiled it into the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Um, And in 2013... They revisited, so the Smithsonian revisited, and they were going to just expand upon the Thomas Jefferson Bible. So they would they cut passages out of the Koran, they cut passages out of the um, the Indian Hindu uh, holy books. Um, they cut from some uh, other Jewish literature and compiled it all. They cut from some of the um, the Buddhist uh, sutras. Um, Buddhist sutras, they cut that, and they compiled it all. How representative of our culture is that? We're going to pick and choose what we like. You do you, boo-boo. You do you. You No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. We'll, we'll quote Elsa here. Terrible theology. I'm not hating on Frozen, but let it go. It's terrible theology. I'm glad we don't sing that on Sunday morning. But we can't pick and choose. The Pharisees were master manipulators of the Torah. If they didn't like something, they would probably leave that part out. If they wanted to do something that was probably against God's Word, they would try and pick out something. Well, I don't like what she's doing, so I'm going to take this verse, bend it a little bit, and tell her she's wrong. Or they would add to God's Word. They would make up their own rules and add and add and add. They love rules. They were like the quintessential Enneagram One. Right, Brianna? (laughs) Sorry. I digress. So, Sound familiar? I don't know if anyone else's toes are hurting, but mine, this is definitely an ouch moment, not an amen moment. Uh, I, I can unfortunately relate to these guys, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this room. Now, as things stand, it seems these guys are the only guys present. Uh, there might have been some other spectators, but they are clearly the focus uh, here in this verse and passage of Scripture. Now, I absolutely love that Luke paints this word picture of the Pharisees just kind of, you know, lounging by, like I mentioned. They're just... But again, they are here, they're on the edge of their seats, just waiting, prowling around, just waiting to catch Jesus in something that they can pull a scripture out and say, ah, blasphemer. Verses 18 and 19. Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the middle of the crowds in front of Jesus. Now, two new entities, back to our formula, two new entities are introduced here to encounter Jesus. A paralyzed man on a bed and some men, some men. In preparation for this teaching, I went and I literally uh, spent some time just so... I spent some time with, with one of my patients who was paraplegic just to um, engross myself in what this feels like because I personally haven't felt physical paralysis. And I, I went back and just jogged my memory about the first patient that I had that was paraplegic. Now, I want to paint a picture of this man for you. Um, I'll never forget watching as this man, this adult man's parents uh, would bring him to the clinic. Just getting to the clinic was a huge task. Uh, He required assistance with being groomed, dressed, placed in his wheelchair. He required specific vehicle modifications um, to even be transported. And he had no use, no use of his lower extremities and minimal use of his upper extremities. And I remember seeing their dedication to their son. And I remember the overwhelming sense of desperation that they had to help their son live life as full as he possibly could. 
He was rendered paraplegic after having a terrible infection that led to a stroke. Prior to the stroke, he had a wife and he had children. After his stroke, um, his care overwhelmed his wife and she left and took the kids, leaving him in the care of his parents. I vividly remember that what desperation I felt to help this man as a physician. And, and my desperation paled in comparison to the desperation of his parents. Now, perhaps you know that feeling. The feeling of tension when someone's needs exceed your capacity to meet those needs. I feel that that is the tension that empowers and leads these men in our story, our scripture today, to, to bring their friend to Jesus. We will do everything within our power to get you to Him. Now, some men. Some men is an understatement. I certainly hope that you can see a glimpse of yourself here. These men care so much about their friend that they literally, physically carry him, possibly from a great distance to encounter Jesus. In the encounters we've discussed thus far, Jesus, Jesus has shown up in their situation. This situation literally had to be carried to Jesus literally at the hands of some dedicated friends. I love it says friends. It doesn't even say family. We don't know. Maybe his family ostracized him. Maybe he was too much to care for. Like my, my patient. Maybe, maybe his wife and kids just walked away because it was just too much to bear. But thank God he had good friends. Thank God he had good friends. And maybe, maybe some of you guys are good friends this morning to somebody who desperately needs to be in the presence of Jesus. Scripture goes on to detail the great lengths that these men went to get their friends in the physical presence of Jesus. A little cultural context in regards to Rus and the logistics of getting on one. In heavily congested cities like where we find ourselves today, uh, without excess space for porches, the roof was a place to get fresh air and essentially function like a porch. And to get there, there was typically a very, very narrow ladder or very, very, very narrow staircase. Again, space is not in abundance here. It took strong will and dedication to hoist a fully grown man up a narrow ladder or staircase. And then the issue of getting through the roof, this likely took some work. The roof was likely composed of multiple tiles or perhaps sun-dried mud, straw, sticks. Regardless, they've hoisted a fully grown man on a bed onto a roof, and now they have to make a way down through the roof. No greater dedication is exhibited than in these men who have brought this man to encounter Jesus. And I just sense echoes, echoes of when Jesus says, greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Now perhaps you find yourself here. Maybe you're not physically carrying a friend to the presence of Jesus, but you're praying, you're fasting, and laboring in the Spirit for a friend, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, a relative, a co-worker, in hopes that your prayers will lift them into the presence of Jesus. I hope and pray that everybody in this room can relate to these men and find themselves in the story here. I'm confident we can all find ourselves in the next encounter. Paralysis, a paralyzed man on a bed. Now, in this set of scriptures, we have a vivid, vivid image of physical paralysis, and we don't know the details. Some translations will translate paralysis as palsy, bringing to mind diagnoses like cerebral palsy that often leave patients in a physical state that makes 
walking and daily function difficult, if not impossible. The fact that Scripture clearly states that a paralyzed man on a bed suggests that this man is bed-bound and unable to leave his bed. Let's move on. Verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, Friends, friend, your sins are forgiven you. First, let's just vamp. When he saw their faith. I have to ask, how visible is your faith? How visible is your faith? If Jesus were to encounter you and you were to stand in his presence, would he say, when I saw your faith, X, Y, or Z happened. Total mic drop moment here. Jesus proclaimed to be God in front of the Pharisees as they would know that only God can forgive sins. Second, Jesus points to the fact that there is no greater malady, no greater pathology than the sin that tries to consume us all. The sin that paralyzes each and every soul. Here is yet another encounter. Jesus, equal with God, encounters the depravity of sin. Jesus confronts the bigger, less visible elephant in the room. When our depravity meets his divinity, it is a beautiful collision. We don't see a specific verbal response here. Maybe there wasn't one. Maybe the paralytic had no words to say. But I argue that silence is a response. Silence is freezing. Silence is surrender. I'm certain the man has been disappointed many times. Maybe you can relate to disappointment. He's visited probably doctor after doctor after doctor and self-proclaimed healer after healer after healer, seeking a cure for his ailment, only to be disappointed again and again and again. Maybe he's been disappointed so many times, he's just numb to disappointment. Can anybody relate to that? Maybe he's having a deer in headlights moment. Maybe, as we'll see in the next few verses, Jesus perceived thoughts. Mind reading Jesus. I like that, Jesus. That's pretty cool. When he perceived the thoughts of the Pharisees. But, but here, he doesn't articulate that he perceived the paralytic's thoughts. Jesus doesn't articulate what the thoughts of the paralytic are after this statement. This is Jesus' first engagement with someone directly in this passage. Here, I believe we see the freeze. We don't have words. He can't fight. He can't flee. He has no option but to freeze. Perhaps that's where we need to be. To surrender, sometimes maybe we have to be in a position where we don't have the energy to fight. We don't have the energy to flee. We can just rest and be silent in the presence of God. Can you imagine the thoughts, though, that are going through this paralyzed man's like, well, that's nice and all, but hello. 
Can you not see that I've got bigger fish to fry here, dude? Can you imagine the friends that physically are exhausted after carrying this paralyzed man from who knows where and then hoisted him onto a roof and then made a man-sized hole in a roof through which to lower an adult male through? My initial thought is that there's disappointment in all five of these guys. How many moments have you come to Jesus thinking you knew exactly what you needed, you asked, but He gave you something different than what your human expectations were expecting? But in X number of time in the future, you look back on that moment and realize retrospectively that He gave you exactly what you needed. Let's keep going. Jesus exercises His superpowers here. Verses 21 and 22. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questioning, there He goes, mind reader, He answered them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Now, a pretty debated and discussed, theologically discussed line in Scripture. Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiving you, or to say, stand up and walk? I think we can all agree that both of those things are very, very hard. But after extensive study, this is clearly a rhetorical question to the Pharisees. Neither of those things are easy to do. However, one has clear evidence and is easy to prove, whereas the other is much harder to prove. Many scholars suggest that Jesus is building up for what happens next in verse 24. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Why did Jesus heal this man? So the Pharisees would know that when Jesus speaks, what he speaks comes to pass. He is good on his word. He's suggesting in this passage that since I can tell this man who is unable to walk to walk, and then he walks, when I say your sins are forgiven, then this man's sins are forgiven. They are wiped away. They are wiped clean. He has a clean slate it is much easier to confirm that a paralytic can walk than it is to confirm a sinner's record has been cleared by grace. And now for the response. Paralytic's response. Verse 25. Key word. Immediately. Immediately. He stood up before them, took what he'd been lying on, and went to his home glorifying God. Now, Luke paints a word picture here of the appropriate response to Jesus. Response has a temporal or time-dependent component, and it is based solely on obedience. Immediate obedience. Immediately, he stood up, took his bed, and went to his home glorifying God. Now, glorifying God is a mature response. And as we'll see, the others glorify God as well. But that immediately makes all the difference in the world. It's an intentional and thoughtful response. The act of taking up his bed, heading home, and glorifying God is responsive 
to Jesus' command to take up his mat and walk. It is immediate obedience, and that is what Jesus calls us all to. Immediate obedience to his word. Luke additionally paints a picture of an alternative response in verse 26. Again, the first word is key. Amazement seized all of them, and they also glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen strange things today. Now, many translations. I use the new Revised Standard Version for this reason today, for this verse. Many translations articulate the word strange as amazing, remarkable, or awesome. That may sound like a very, very positive thing. But how often do we use the word awesome in our culture and remarkable in our culture and amazing in our culture really, really loosely? Do the things that we call awesome truly inspire awe in our heart? The only true inspiration for awe is the miraculous love, and grace that Jesus showed us on the cross. Now, Scripture does say they glorified God, but their first reaction, not response, reaction is amazement, awe. Now, again, not bad in and of himself, those words are not, and might at first glance or first hear be connotated in a positive light. But reaction can happen from a distance. Reaction can be passive. Reaction is an innate and immature reflex, not requiring thought or mature processing. Reaction is impulsive and reflexive. Reaction is often shallow and thoughtless. You can maintain disobedience and react. Response requires contact. Response requires close proximity. A response is reflective action, not reflexive action. Responses are rooted in reflection and pondering and thoughtfulness. A response has depth. True response follows the path of obedience. Now, as we reflect back on the passage or respond to the passage, see what I did there? I would argue that there are multiple paralytics in this story. Clearly on the surface, we have a man whose physical existence is paralyzed, but he's surrounded by a group of individuals who are spiritually, emotionally, and mentally paralyzed by their pride, their preconceptions, their traditions, and all involved parties in our scripture today, like all involved parties in this room today, are paralyzed by the sin sickness that infects us all. We have found ourselves somewhere in this story today. Now, if I told you, if I mentioned the name Rob Balukas today, many of you would have no idea who I was referring to. But Rob's story is oddly reminiscent of our passage of Scripture today. I want you to meet Rob. Now, Rob was a California real estate investor, and he was wiped out by the Great Recession of 2008. He had to file bankruptcy. And his words were after that, I felt like a failure. 
I pushed myself to the greatest part of my 30s. Punished myself, sorry, for the greatest part of my 30s. Self-fulfilling prophecy overwhelmed me, and I was I doomed any next step to failure. I was overcome by gut-wrenching pain of fear, anxiety, and bewilderment. In the moment, I was just, these were his words, paralyzed by fear. I imagine some of you might relate to Rob. He said, have you been in the moment where damage has already been done and any next move could be the wrong move, making it even worse, and the fear of the whole situation leaves you just stuck in place? Rob visited polyvagal theory like we did in the beginning. And he thought about that gazelle in the lion's grasp. And he decided to freeze. He decided to surrender. And he said, I did these three things. I surrendered. I found gratitude. And I took a step. After that, He decided to train for a half Ironman in 2015. And two weeks before his half Ironman, he lost control of his bike on a training run, broke his collarbone, broke most of the left side of his ribs, collapsed his left lung, and burst the L1 vertebrae, leaving him paralyzed from the lower back all the way down. His response as he lay in his hospital bed was, why would I stack the mental paralysis on the physical paralysis I now get to enjoy? I had a great team of doctors. I had a brain that was still producing thoughts, hopes, and dreams, and I had supportive friends. He made a vow to race in less than a year, and not only did he, the next year he rode the same hill he crashed on on a hand cycle and then crossed the finish line of a half Iron Man that he was training for the previous year. After he crossed the finish line, his response was, I have failed more than I've completed, but the truth is that doesn't matter. What matters is this. Most of us have the ability to choose a response when adversity strikes, and adversity will strike sooner and later, and big and small. Sounds a little like Jesus uh, telling us, In this world, we will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the trouble. He kept going. Do we choose the victim bucket where we thrash about in those jaws of pain, fear, and anxiety? Or do we choose the perseverance bucket where we know that pain, fear, and anxiety are normal and temporary if we just surrender to the experience? Whichever you choose, another day is coming. Another day for you to choose your own adventure. Now, Rob's perspective is a very secular perspective. I would argue we don't need to surrender to an experience, but we need to surrender to Jesus. To use Rob's terminology, are you paralysis stacking? Do you remain paralyzed by your sin, paralyzed by your sympathetic nervous system, fighting Christ's call to holiness? living and walking in the paralyzing jaws of fear. Jesus wants to encounter you. He wants to encounter you immediately. He wants to cleanse you and come alongside you and help you bear your burdens. 
So my invitations to you today are the same three invitations that Rob offered. I invite you to surrender. I invite you to freeze this morning. I invite you to find and express gratitude this morning. And I invite you to take a step. And I don't know what that step looks like, but it's a step away from the paralysis that you're experiencing today. Will you stand with me as we contemplate this morning? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just focus on encountering Jesus this morning. Where do you find yourself in the story today? Do you stand in need of spiritual healing? Do you stand in need of physical healing? Are you carrying a loved one or a friend to the healer? How visible is your faith this morning? Will Jesus be able to see your faith in intercession for those you are trying to carry to Him? Are you reacting to Jesus or are you responding to Jesus? Are you wanting the gifts or do you want a relationship to the giver? Are you fighting the urging of the Spirit? Are you fleeing from the calling that God has on your life? Let us give Him our worship today, and it's your opportunity to surrender, find gratitude, and take a step. Let's pray together. Father, we we yield to you today. We know you're in this room today. We know you want to encounter us. And we know there's immediacy to the encounter you want to have with us. I pray that your spirit would break through the callousness of our hearts to recognize the malady that infects us that is sin. I pray that you would strengthen those who are carrying a loved one I pray that they would find help in carrying those that they love into your presence. And God, show us what the step is. Show us what our step is. Reveal that to us, Lord. We give you our hearts and we are thankful for the redemptive and transformative power of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. After the service, after we worship, after we offer Him our worship, I invite you to just continue to to ponder and thoughtfully pursue what Jesus has for you. Our prayer team will be down front after the service. And I want to pray with you. I want to pray to help you find surrender. I want to pray to help you carry someone that you love into the presence of Jesus. And I want to help pray you through what the step is. Let's worship.